chapter 26 as we return to the upper room. This morning we come to the institution of that meal that we will be contemplating through the week, celebrating, Lord willing, next week. We're looking at verses 26 through 30 of Matthew chapter 26 this morning. I'd like to read that passage and ask Sam if you pray for the ministry of the word this morning. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper, and we could do an entire four-month sermon series on the Lord's Supper. Um, people have written entire books, large books, on the Lord's Supper. There's a lot that can be said about it, but this sermon series is about the passion of Christ. Lord willing, next week we will be looking, uh, or take a, a slight break, and, and move over to one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians where in chapter 10, he gives us a, a very uh, wonderful, somewhat mysterious uh, significance of the Lord's Supper. But today, we're going to continue on that path that led Jesus to the cross, to the grave, and to the sky. His passion, as it is called, the Passion Week of Christ. This was part of it, and as I mentioned last week, and, and hopefully in a, a thought that that perhaps pricked your own minds into contemplating what was going on here. That this event, this last night of Jesus' life, is perhaps the, the most crucial event in the, the transfer, the historical transfer, or the movement between the Old Covenant and the New. And this is what we're going to be looking at today. Generally, however, when we partake of communion, when we consider communion, we're instructed by the Apostle Paul to, to look forward. Even Jesus in verse 29 says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of my Father. 
And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus also instructed his disciples that when we partake of communion, we proclaim his death until he comes. And so there is indeed a, a forward-looking sense in which we take communion and a forward-looking sense in which the Lord first delivered this ordinance, this sacrament, to his disciples. But I also believe that there's much to look back on. That there was a great deal of history, of heritage, and of prophecy that led to this event. And through this event, on into the future. The debate that this passage brings us to that we've frequently encountered in our sermons and teaching series is, is called the continuity versus discontinuity debate. And the mere fact that our Bibles are divided between the Old Testament books and the New Testament books kind of highlight this discontinuity. And many of your Bibles, I, I know mine does, but if you, if you turn back before Matthew, you, you have some sections of, oh, study outlines and notes and, you know, um, history and weights and measures and just stuff. Very few of our English Bibles go straight from Malachi to Matthew, do they? Some reason our publishers felt like we needed to put stuff in between them. Fortunately, they didn't put 400 years worth of stuff in between them. But does any stuff belong there? You know, I think we, we succumb, we easily fall into this mindset that the New Testament is, is discontinuous from the Old Testament, that there was a break and that um, something new has begun. And we read these passages as Christians and we tend to forget that this is Passover. This is Pesach. This is a Jewish feast. No less a, a worthy as J.C. Ryle who was an excellent teacher and even more remarkable considering he was a prelate in the Anglican church. But, you know, much of what you read from Ryle is, is just meaty and it's good. But listen to what he says about the, the setting and the timing of the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said, Our Lord well knew the things that were before him and graciously chose the last quiet evening that he could before his crucifixion as an occasion for the bestowing a parting gift on his church. What? This was just a quiet evening. This was just a family meal? A, a, a convenient occasion? This is Passover. Perhaps the most important, it seems to me, the most joyful feast in the Jewish calendar. And this is the event, this is the timing that didn't just happen, but was providentially ordained by God in which his son would bring into being a new meal. It wasn't just a quiet evening, and Jesus was not, though he well knew what was before him. What Ryle seems to overlook is that our Lord well knew what was behind him too. He was well aware of what was coming in that evening and the next day and, and in the coming days. But he was also well aware of the forces of history and of prophecy that brought him to this point. Which is why he says in another passage, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal. Not because, you know, we'll be in a room all by ourselves and it'll be quiet. 
We won't be troubled by, you know, all those other disciples trying to get to me and, and wanting healing. No, we'll be together. No, this is Passover. Last week I made the comment that I believe that this was the last Passover. That there is a transition here. That Jesus did something at this meal that I believe would have, would have somewhat shocked the disciples as we look at the, the Passover Seder. And that does bring up the, the whole concept of the continuity-discontinuity debate. Is the church of the New Testament plan B? Is the church of the New Testament God's alternative means of saving the Gentiles because the Jews rejected their Messiah? That would be the, the discontinuity side of the debate, which with I wholeheartedly and vehemently disagree. That the designs and the redemptive history or plan of God has been continuous from eternity past. It has not changed. God has not altered what he's doing. And now that's the argument of the continuity says that the, exactly that. God is continuing to do what he promised to do, what he proposed to do, what he promised in Genesis 3.15. What we read about developing in, in the law and in the prophets is coming to a fulfillment. That's the continuity debate. But my struggle has always been in that while maintaining God's continuous plan, how do we properly highlight and exalt in time the coming, the incarnation, the life, the work, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? That is something. Even, even Paul tells us, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. What does the fullness of time mean? That's where we are. We're at the fullness of time here. Klaus Schilder, in his trilogy on the Passion Week, has this to say, The moment in which he blesses the bread, and giving thanks also blesses the wine, is the moment in which the Passover of the Old Testament has to give way to the supper of the new. Now, I know that's a controversial statement, and it can easily fall into the hands of the dispensational mindset that says that all the old things, you know, they're, they're of no value. They're of no purpose. But I want to make it clear that what I'm trying to do in my own life, as well as in my studies and in my sermons and teaching, is to understand what God did in time through his son, Jesus Christ, and to recognize that the things that Jesus did and said and instituted, like this supper, are significant. They are momentous in the sense that they were moments in time that have powerful impact on the future. And I agree with Schilder that as these disciples were sitting there, something happened that night that, that represented a change. Not a discontinuity, but rather a moving from old to new. And that is, I think, hard for us to understand. And yet, I think at the end of the day, we want to understand that there is a culmination of all God's promises in Jesus Christ. We read again from the pen of the Apostle Paul that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That in him, everything that we read about in the Old Testament culminates and comes into a summation 
And from that, there is an explosive expansion of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I like to picture it in my own mind as all of the promises of of God as he mediated them through the nation of Israel narrowed down into a man, his son, born in the flesh, who becomes himself Israel. And it's as if, as it was in the days of Noah, that God found but one man. And here in the days of Jesus, God placed everything on one man. But then through that man, through his victory over Satan and over death, the grace of God has now expanded out into the world. Salvation is from the Jews. Salvation flows from Israel to the nations. We are the grafted-in ones. But nonetheless, that is a glorious place to be as opposed to being wild olives in our own trunk. So the way to the cross and to the grave is a momentous event. The passion that we're studying is, it is, it is significant not just as, his, as history, but as the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that's a momentous event. That is not to say that the Old Testament saints did not have the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit is is unknown in the Old Testament, as some maintain. But nonetheless, something different happened when God poured out His Spirit upon His people at Pentecost. That was a momentous event. The grafting in, as I mentioned, of wild Gentile branches, that's a momentous event prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah says, or the Lord says through Isaiah, it is too small a thing that his servant would be just the salvation of Israel, that he would become the salvation of the Gentiles. And it was this that that Simeon was looking for, the consolation, the glory of Israel and the consolation of the Gentiles. Jesus Christ is a momentous event in history. And to me, this momentous shift between the Old and the New Covenants occurred this night in the upper room and specifically in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, as I said last week, I understand there's a lot of overlap. As you read through the Gospels and the book of Acts, you see a lot of overlap. It's not not like the Old Covenant came to a wall or even a stone covering the tomb. And then with the removal of that tomb, the New Covenant begins. I don't think that is it at all. I think... You, you, you begin to see the new covenant coming even in the preaching of John, the one who came in the wilderness proclaiming, make straight the paths for the Lord. You know, you see it coming up as the twilight. And if, if we look at it as that, then this is the full light of day. There's another indication of, of this shift that I'm talking about. Not a discontinuity, but a fulfillment and a culmination of everything that God has done in a particular word that we find in the New Testament only only two places. It's, it's the word, we talked about it in Sunday school actually. The word is kyriake. It's the possessive form of the Greek word kyrios, which means Lord. So it's translated Lords. And in two instances only, this word is attached to another noun. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, we find John on the Lord's day. That's the only place that's used. 
Elsewhere, it talks about the first day of the week and the gathering. But this is where it says, the Lord's day. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Paul calls this meal the Lord's Supper. Now, there may be nothing in that. It may not be significant. But it also may indicate a very important shift in the cadence of a believer's life. Because the two things that the Lord's day and the Lord's supper replaced were essential rhythms in the cadence of the believer's life under the old covenant. The Sabbath and the Seder. And so the Lord's taking ownership of these, and we don't have the time to go into the whole idea of the shift from the Sabbath to the Lord's day, but we're talking about what I believe to be a shift between the Seder and the Supper. The Lord is taking ownership of these and claiming them as his own, and his own for his people. Is this a discontinuity? Well, as I said, I don't believe it is, and I think it is a terrible mistake that has been made on the church and with the Word. The teachers who have divided up the Scripture into different eras and different segments, different dispensations, and they have taught that God, at the beginning of a dispensation, has put together a plan of salvation that by the end of that dispensation has turned out to be a failure and so God intervenes with some form of judgment and then begins a new dispensation with a new means of salvation. The whole idea of God, it, it's like this trial and error. God's trying these different things in order to, to bring about the salvation of people. I can't accept that either in, in my mental idea of a God, but certainly not in my understanding of Scripture. Who God, God who does all things according to the counsel of his own will. God who, who straightens and no man can bend and bends and no man can straighten. Who knows the end from the beginning. We just was, had read in our own, you know, this morning from Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is not a God who changes his mind or comes up with plan B. So I think I approach the whole debate not from the standpoint of, of recognizing you know, a discontinuity, but rather looking for continuity. Looking for the strands of redemptive history that, that are woven through the entire history of Scripture and of the world. And recognizing that that is why the writers of the New Testament constantly quote the Old Testament. I firmly believe that if the New Covenant had only first shown up in the New Testament that it would have been suspect. In fact, it should have been suspect. If the first time we hear of the New Covenant is in the New Testament, then I'm not sure it should have been believed. And I think even the Apostle Paul would agree with me because he indicates in almost all of his letters that that which he te taught, that which he preached, that's what he believed had its roots and its foundation in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, where we first find the promises of the New Covenant in the New Testament. We spend a lot of time in the Old Testament here at Fellowship Bible Church. I've been told over the years 
Sometimes I've been told we spend an inordinate amount of time in the Old Testament. Other times I've had people marvel that they had never heard the Old Testament read or taught in their churches for decades. We spend our time in the Old Testament because we rejoice in the heritage into which we have been adopted through Jesus Christ. But we also recognize that Jesus Christ himself represents the culmination of all of the promises. And in the Old Testament, we read a prophetic history that is anticipating something new. When we read the Old Testament, we see from Genesis 3.15, where the promise of the seed of woman is made, there's always a looking forward to an ultimate redemption that God has promised in a Savior, a Messiah, a Yahweh, a servant of Yahweh, called different things in different places, but there is an anticipation of something new. This expectant hope is most powerfully found in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And I wish we could spend the time to look at those passages, but they are referred to frequently in the Old Testament or alluded to. Jeremiah 31 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. And the sprinkling of water and of the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel 36 and the new heart that is spoken of in Ezekiel 36 is referenced all through the New Testament. These two passages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel were anticipating something coming, something to look forward to. And particularly in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, we read, Behold, days are coming. Days are coming. That was the mindset, that was the prophetic um, attitude of anticipation. As things were falling apart, Jeremiah was at the, at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. He himself would be carried off by his brethren into Egypt, whither he did not want to go. He was basically taken as a captive. But Jeremiah counsels the people to pray for the city to which God is taking them. The exile, folks, it's a done deal. God has lowered the boom, and here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel is in Babylon. And so it would appear to a prophet like Jeremiah, to a prophet like Ezekiel, that everything has failed if they were dispensational. They would say, okay, it's time to start over with something new. You know, let's close this one down. God's starting a new dispensation, but they didn't. They spoke of the future in the language of the past with a hope that was given to them by the Spirit of God. Days are coming. And in Jeremiah 31, those days were the days of the new covenant. Spoken of as a new covenant. The promise of the newness of the covenant was not because the old was bad or worn out. And it certainly wasn't because, as the dispensationalist teaches, the old covenant failed because Israel rejected their Messiah. He hadn't come yet. And it wasn't that God failed because he didn't quite understand the virulence of human sin. You know, the, the law just wasn't good enough. Men just couldn't keep it. They were just too sinful, as if God didn't know that. But rather, Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 8, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did 
sending his own son. That's what God intended to do all along. That takes us back beyond the law, back to the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, the seed of woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so in the midst of the Old Covenant, and, and one might say in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in, in the midst of the rubble of the Old Covenant, they could speak of a New Covenant. And yet that New Covenant still centered around God's law. The days are coming when I will write my law upon their heart. And, and they will not say to each other, know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. It's a new covenant written in the terms of the old covenant. And so there is continuity between the old and the new. And that's what I believe is happening in this shift on this last night before Jesus died between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. Jesus used the same terminology in his teaching, but he used it with an authoritative voice and with a remarkable addition. For example, in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming. Well, that sounded very prophetic to the ears of the, of the Jews who were listening to him. And then he said, And now is. That there's, to me, the crux. Not discontinuity. Jesus did, did not come saying, I've got a new message from God. I mean, you hear that through the ages. Joseph Smith had a new message. Muhammad had a new message. He didn't, Jesus didn't come with a new message. He came with the message of the prophets and the announcement that the day and the hour now is. And that's where our emphasis should be in this, in this whole debate. Not that there's been some plan B and God's come up with a different idea. Far be that from the truth. But also not focusing so much on what happened in the past that we might forget that Jesus has come. And that in him, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he could say, an hour is coming and now is. And he could take the Seder meal which by the time of Jesus and until this day, today, is a very liturgical meal. It has a distinct pattern. We can even look at that meal and, and say, without a doubt, that the bread that he broke was unleavened. Because this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Jewish households had already removed the lemon, leaven, lemon, the leaven from their homes. We can say, with fair accuracy, that the cup was probably the cup of blessing. Because we know that in the Jewish Seder there are a number of toasts and cups, not really toasts, but blessings that are taken with the cup of wine. Jesus' own blessing was probably somewhat formulaic. It is typical for the, the Father to take the cup of blessing and to say, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And the hymn that they sang before they went to the Mount of Olives was most likely Psalm 118 because it is the tradition of the Jewish Seder to sing the Psalms of the Hallel which run from 115 to 118. And so we can, we can look at it. This was, this was an event that these men had participated in. At one point in time, they were the youngest 
And they were the one whose responsibility it was was to ask the father, what what does all this mean? Which would commence in the story of the Exodus and God's deliverance of his people and his creation of a holy nation. These men had lived the Seder. It was part of the cadence of their life. And then Jesus takes the loaf and breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. What? And he takes the cup and he blesses it and he says, Drink all of you from this, for this is my blood of the new covenant. The blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Now I don't think I'm being too imaginative to think that the disciples were somewhat stunned by what Jesus introduced to a very traditional well-known, liturgical meal. And if it had been anyone else, they might have considered it to be an innovation and an aberration of their glorious Seder, of their historical meal. D.A. Carson says, we must remember that this is a Passover meal. The new rite Jesus institutes has links with redemptive history, There's that continuity. But I think we also have to remember, and Carson goes on, in fact, he's the only commentator I was able to find on this passage who actually talks about the Passover. All of the rest talk about the Lord's Supper and its meaning for us without ever recognizing that it was instituted during the Passover. And that in that institution... Jesus was doing something that the disciples would have recognized as new. This this bread is my body. This cup is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Yes, he was proclaiming his death. Yes, he was teaching them what his death meant, that it was for them, that it was for not only them, but as we read in John 17, it was for all those who believed on him through the word that they preached. That's us. And so when we read the words of institution of communion, we can be as those disciples sitting there and realizing that that body is for me. That blood was for me. When I partake of communion, when I eat the bread, when I drink the wine, I am partaking in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, we'll we'll talk about that more next week and what that means. But it is an act of union and communion with the one Lamb who was once forever laid on the altar for our souls. In a sense, I believe, for me anyhow, communion is my Passover feast. Communion is my celebration of deliverance, that I have been freed from the bondage of sin, that I have been delivered into the people and nation of God, as Peter calls us, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that I have been constituted part of the kingdom of God rather than of the world. That's, That's communion. That's what it means to me. There is the old Passover, and yet there's the new. And I will confess, as I think I have admitted in all our discussions about continuity and discontinuity, 
I have not yet entirely figured out the spectrum, how the Old Testament saint was saved, what was the mechanism of his salvation. You know, those types of questions for which we are not given clear and explicit answers. I haven't figured that out, but I do know that the work of God has been the same from the beginning. That's continuity. That what God purposed to do from eternity past, He has been doing, He has done, and will continue to do until the day of Jesus Christ. And there is no alteration in His purpose and no change in His plans. I know that His plans have not been thwarted by even my sin. It has not been thwarted by the sin of the nation of Israel in rejecting their Messiah. It has not been thwarted by the stubbornness and hardness of the nations. It's still moving toward its inexorable goal. But I also know that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And after that, nothing could be the same ever again. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this historical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And Father, I know that each of us must come to our own conclusion from the Scripture as to what it means, but I do pray that by the guidance of your Holy Spirit, we would each rejoice in it. We will each exalt it as our feast, the feast of the Church of Jesus Christ, and we would see in it our deliverance, the sacrifice of the Passover Lamb, your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that even as we prepare our hearts for celebrating communion next week, that these events would percolate in our minds and in our hearts, and we would meditate upon them, that you might lead us into a greater understanding of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session at your right hand, which all belong to our hope, our eternal hope. Father, we ask that you would build up your church and that you would add to it daily those who are being saved. We long to see your churches filled. Father, we ask this for your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please rise this morning for the benediction from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.